Hey there, No Wrong Answers listeners. This is Kyle Palmer. Before you listen to this next episode, I just wanted to acknowledge what you may be feeling and thinking about right now. If you're anything like me, you've watched and read about the tragedy in Las Vegas, one of our nation's deadliest mass shootings. As I'm saying this, 59 people are dead, more than 500 injured, after a gunman rained bullets down from a hotel room onto an open-air country music festival. It's sickening and hard to digest. And I imagine not a few of you have had students ask you about it or bring it up in class, and you're struggling to figure out how to talk about it with them. I remember I was teaching when the Sandy Hook massacre happened in 2012. It was 26 people dead, including 20 very young children. And I remember consoling one of my colleagues that day as she cried during our planning period. It was a really hard time. We recorded this episode on a Sunday earlier in the day before the Las Vegas shooting occurred, so you'll hear us talk about anthem protests and millennials and how to show teachers appreciation, but you won't hear us talk about Las Vegas, even though it's now on my mind and maybe on your mind and many Americans' minds, whether we want it to be or not. I just want to say we are thinking about it, probably just like you are, and also maybe like you are, we're thinking of how to address it and talk about it in the future. So stay tuned. Now, this episode of No Wrong Answers. This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by Teach for America Kansas City, which believes teachers deserve to be celebrated and their voices elevated. Find out how you can join their movement of passionate educators in Kansas City by going to teachforamerica.org or find us on Twitter at TFA underscore KC or on Instagram at TFAKC. It was inevitable our country's national anthem protest controversy comes to the schoolhouse. How should teachers react when kids refuse to stand for the anthem or the Pledge of Allegiance? Plus, millennials see public education very differently from previous generations. That's mostly a good thing, say our teachers. And to mark World Teachers Day, we ask, how can the world show you appreciation? All that plus kids these days on this episode of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I'm a former teacher turned public radio journalist, and I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who are ready to talk. So let's introduce them. Paul Donovan, what do you teach? I teach uh, dual credit math uh, for college algebra, pre-calculus, and calculus, and then I teach adjunct college in the evenings and at Lansing Prison uh, in the evenings as well. Getting all over. Luann Fox, what do you teach? I teach high school English. And Bakari Ukuu, what do you do in education? I'm a vice principal for middle school. Uh, good to have all three of you. You work at public school teachers in the Kansas City metro area. We should note that. Let's get to it. Like a lot of big national news stories, the controversy over NFL players silently protesting during the national anthem has made its way down to America's public schools. This has become such a big story, whether you believe it should be a big story or not, that it's only natural we should start to see anthem protest and the like in schools. It's worth it, I think, to review the history of this just a bit because the recent hubbub has obscured maybe a little bit what this is all about. Of course, President Donald Trump harangued NFL players for kneeling or sitting during the national anthem, referring to them as SOBs and calling on owners to fire players who did so. The Sunday after Trump said those things, some 200 players around the league did their own individual acts of protest. In some cases, entire teams chose not to come out of their locker rooms for the national anthem. What exactly they were protesting was... uh, 
you know, obscure maybe, unclear in many cases, though several prominent players expressed the willingness to stand up for free speech rights as well as anger at President Trump. Of course, all this began last season when then San Francisco 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick decided to sit during the national anthem before preseason games. In fact, three games went by before anyone noticed. And once people did notice and reporters asked him why he was doing it, he said, Quote, I am, do, I am not going to stand up to show pride in a flag for a country that oppresses black people and people of color. To me, this is bigger than football, and it would be selfish on my part to look the other way. There are bodies in the street and people getting paid leave, getting away with murder. End quote. Kaepernick then adjusted his protest, switching from sitting on the bench to kneeling. He did this, it was later revealed, after consultation with a teammate who was also a former Green Beret, who on HBO's Real Sports said he told Kaepernick it would be seen by veterans as more respectful if he kneeled. Of course, now it's much bigger and crazier. But this is filtering down to schools and kids. For instance, in Oakland, the Oakland Unified School District's honors band comprised of some 100 students from the district's high schools. Nearly all took a knee as they performed the national anthem on the field before an Oakland A's baseball game. The band's director said the students had the support of him and district officials before they did it. In contrast, a principal at a high school in Louisiana made headlines nationwide when he sent a letter home with students saying that if student athletes at that school kneeled during the anthem before sporting events, then those students could be kicked off their teams. And if you think it's just about the anthem, think again. A Florida first grader was admonished by his teacher recently for kneeling during the saying of the Pledge of Allegiance. When the boy's mother complained, district officials cited a Florida state law that indeed requires students to stand and place their hand over their heart when saying the pledge. But as the boy's mother said, quote, what he did was having a difference of opinion. He was not being disrespectful. He was silently protesting and exercising his constitutional rights. So for my teachers here today, do you feel a sense of, uh, do you feel pressure to try to, um, I guess I'll phrase it this way, enforce kind of these rituals of patriotism, have kids stand up, have kids show deference and respect? Do you feel that pressure to do that as educators? So when I hear this like question around pressure, I feel less pressure to get my students to fall in line with these protocols and rituals of America and more pressure in really getting them to analyze why they are what they are and, and why do we celebrate the certain things that we celebrate. Um, and so when I think about the anthem, when we think about looking at the lyrics of the anthem and going beyond what we often hear when we sing it, we go beyond that first verse, we actually see some very problematic language to many minorities, particularly African-Americans. We think about the 4th of July and independence we weren't free when we were got when Fourth of July happened, and so, but we're still expected to to be a part of this culture and a part and just assimilate without really having the freedoms and the opportunities to have conversation around what that really means for us as a people and as a culture and how that has impacted our journey here in America. And to be clear, you for years you've worked in a district that is majority minority, mm-hmm. you know, majority African American in fact, and you used to even work at a school that was had a kind of an African-centered curriculum. Mm-hmm. Um, have, so have you working in an environment like that what has been kind of the institutional or or um, I, among the, the feeling among your colleagues about some of the things you're talking about here, the, the, the anthem, the, the patriotism, the 4th of July? I think it, it varies. While we teach a primarily minority population, most of our teachers are not minority. And so the lens in which they view America is much different than the lens in which I view America, being a minority and being a minority educator. And so I think that 
I mean, we talk about culturally responsive teaching, and, and that's part of that culture, being culturally responsive, is being aware, especially in these type of times where we have to engage our students in a larger conversation. It's not just about following protocol and, and following in line with the rituals. It's about really being a critical thinker and understanding what this means for society and what this, how this impacts you as a person and being able to make a choice on your own. Another No Wrong Answers panelist posted on his Facebook a couple of days ago this quote, which I thought was excellently captured the, the sentiment is that it says racism in America is so American that when we protest racism, the average American assumes we're protesting America and that it is just so ingrained to who we are as a country that we don't know how to separate it. And so when I talk about patriotism being just racism shrouded in its, in its pride for our country, that is exactly what it becomes is that these type of things, the 4th of July, the national anthem, these what we hold as our symbols of pride, and yet they are very problematic to people who were here and did not have opportunities to participate in ways that others want us to, to chime in. Oh, it just reminds me of uh, Frederick Douglass's What is this? Mm-hmm. What yes. is the 4th of July, July to yes. the slave? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, uh, and I'm probably saying the title wrong, but you know what? I'm, you know what piece I'm talking about, but it's exactly that, yeah. So in this conversation, if someone who has been offended by these protests is listening, they might think, well, shouldn't young people be taught to respect the country they're growing up in? Absolutely. But like no person is perfect, no country is perfect. And I think you can only respect something if you really can examine it in all of its flaws. It would be it would be horrible to have um, some sort of revisionist history go out mm-hmm. where we have generations in the future that just really don't learn about some of the Wouldn't ugliness. Be. I mean, birth is ugly in and of itself. And the birth of America is it's no exception. You, you can only come to appreciate something if you know it fully. For, for me, I think the problem comes all the way down back to the beginning. Maybe it's because I'm a math teacher, but um, definitions are important. And I don't think when we say we need to respect the flag, I don't think people agree on what that means. What is respect? Mm-hmm. From what I'm seeing, nobody on any side is trying to disrespect the flag or the country. People have different ideas of what that respect means. And I think that's what's getting a lot of the students kind of Glaze looks in their eyes because they say you got to respect the flag, you got to respect America, but nobody's explaining what that looks so like. So you've, I mean, you've had incidents at your school where um, an administrator or a teacher has gotten on students for not quote showing respect for the flag during the national anthem. Like, how did that go down? And then what was the student's response? It was it was a an incident during a school assembly where um, the, they were singing the national anthem and about oh maybe half of the students were just talking to each other and and laughing and goofing around while the anthem was going. Uh, and so the principal got very upset and said, uh, you know, whatever your feelings are, you at least need to be quiet and respectful to the people who are trying to pay their respects to the flag. And so, you know, he had us do it again until everybody could at least... Like be, play, the, play the whole play, anthem Play over. the whole anthem again until everybody could at least be quiet. Um, I, I think he personally would be fine with with uh, protests of like taking a knee from what I know of the principal, but he's trying to to ride the line between by keeping you know both sets of parents happy. So I think he's trying to say, yeah, you might not you might not want to participate, but at least don't dis- disrespect those that do. And so he's he's uh, he's trying to find the best solution. Is that it. I mean, do you find that a coherent <laughs> argument? Well, the the students were like. I mean, they were teenagers, so they were like, oh, come on, that's BS, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, eventually just to get it over with, they they were quiet. So, like, and then it, 
everything went on. Yeah, but it, just, it didn't mean they were respectful. They were just well, like, yeah. Compliant. So what, right. what, what's ultimately the lesson that's learned there? I guess <laughs> to shut up during the anthem. <laughs> um, I guess extra, I mean extrapolating that that out to society. Then I mean, do you think mm-hmm. a, I mean, a, lot, a lot of people just do that <laughs> just to shut right. up and, and not? Right. And I mean, and to be to be honest, when I do go to sporting events, when they do the anthem, I don't see a lot of people around me paying that much attention either. They're just more quiet about it. But the the anthem is not a big deal for a lot of people, low-key, to use one of the, the kids' terms. Um, it's just, uh, it just it doesn't draw attention. They just know quietly. Until think, a black man says uh, he has another st- narrative to be said. That's true. And now everyone cares. That's true. Yep. Too often, and I think about the people who are upset now that someone is taking a stance and, and presenting their, their point of view during the national anthem by kneeling, this notion of bystanders. So when I hear you talk about your principal wanted them to just be silent. I think about this notion of like, well, how are we developing citizens? Too often in America, we have de- part of our uh, norm is to be a, a bystander. And that's why they get upset because they can no longer just be a bystander because now they're confronted with the injustices of America and they don't want to deal with it. And I think that's often where the offense takes place is that they're not offended that Kaepernick took a knee. They're offended that now they have to do something about it. They have to <laughs> respond to it. And so they can no longer just be a bystander. So, they have so to pick a side. You've given me examples of students who like maybe just don't want to stand because it's 7.20 in the morning or they have some adult telling them to stand. Uh-huh. But I guess for a student who is trying to make a political point, um, do they have free speech rights in school? Yes. Yes, they yes. do. They do. Is there any, any limitation to that? Yes. You can't harm anybody else. Once it becomes <laughs> disruptive to the school environment, it, their freedom of speech is limited. Right. Mm. That's what actually what the law says. Right. So, I mean, that you're, you're referencing or, or going back to, I think, a pretty famous free speech case, um, Tinker, I believe is what mm-hmm. it was called back in 1969, a Des Moines that school. That was the Des Moines one, mm-hmm. right? With, With the Vietnam War yeah, the, armbands. The band. Students right. were protesting the Vietnam War by wearing black armbands. The U.S. Supreme Court said that they had that right um, as long as it was not, because it was not disruptive to the, the, the regular operations of the school. As Justice Abe Fortas wrote in that decision, quote, in our system, students may not be regarded as closed circuit recipients of only that which the state chooses to communicate. Students are entitled to freedom of expression of their views. Our podcast today is sponsored by Teach for America Kansas City, which believes one day all children will have the opportunity to attain an excellent education. You can make an immediate impact on that mission in Kansas City. To find out how, visit teachforamerica.org or find them on Twitter at TFA underscore KC and on Instagram at TFA KC. Our next topic, it's become a jokey internet meme to say millennials are killing everything. (laughs) From malls to college football to the nuclear family and the American dream, it's easy to find think pieces online about how millennials are ruining America. This hand-wringing is often accompanied by charges that millennials are self-centered, coddled, entitled, and lazy. I can say that because I'm technically a millennial, all of that. All that to say millennial views on America's education system turn out to be pretty nuanced and informed. That stands to reason millennials are, after all, the generation that has actually experienced schools firsthand most recently as students. Many millennials, of course, are still in school as well. The University of Chicago's Gen Forward Project interviewed a representative sample of 1,750 Americans between the ages of 18 and 34 earlier this year. 
Gen Forward's larger mission is to measure the political attitudes of young Americans in all different arenas. This latest survey focused on education. And the results should be interesting for educators and policymakers wondering about the legitimacy and public backing of current and future reforms. For instance, wide majorities of millennials believe poorer students receive, by and large, worse educations than wealthier students. Millennials agree the best way to improve K-12 education outcomes is to increase school funding, followed by more teacher training and boosting teacher pay. As far as popular or prominent education reforms that have been in the news a lot in recent years, millennials mostly favor charter schools, with higher proportions of black and Asian respondents favoring charters. Comfortable majorities of millennials also favor private school vouchers across all demographic groups. That may be sort of a surprise. In terms of race, as there is in many segments of America, there are some disagreements on this survey. Majorities of black and Asian millennial respondents agree that students of color in America receive worse educations than whites, but majorities of Latinos and whites said that race plays, quote, very little role in educational outcomes. These are millennials, but I also call them the no-child-left-behind generation. They grew up in our current system of education that prizes outcomes and data and testing more so than previous generations. They've also grown up in an education system that's more privatized, not just in the literal sense, but balkanized with school choice, charter schools, and vouchers. So what do these results tell us about how millennials view education in America today? For our teachers at the table, and I'll just point out very clearly, only one of you is a millennial. (laughs) We won't say who, but it'll it'll probably become clear during our conversation. Um, um, (laughs) uh, I guess growing up in the, uh, you know, growing up in the school system of the last 20 to 25 years, um, how do you think has that impacted young people's views of education? I'm actually not surprised that millennials today would, would, uh, be very open to charter schools. I think the way that we see the education reform movement now, I mean, you know, any number of videos will talk about uh, new and different techniques that this charter school, that charter school is coming. My own district just saw um, most likely to succeed. Um, That's going to, you know, that's who doesn't look at that and see that would be great. That would, that would really be great if we could all do that. And we were freed from things like state tests and and all that kind of stuff. And I think millennials today, they've, they're closer to their education than of course, people like myself are. Plus many of them are, are having their own children right now and they want for their own children not to be so test driven the way that, that they were when they were in school. So it really doesn't surprise me that they look at charter schools just on the basis of, Oh my gosh, innovation and different techniques and strategies for for looking forward and for jobs that haven't been created yet and everything. And yes, of course, I want that for my child in this very competitive world. And I think that's where that's what drives them. I would agree. I think that part of this um, openness to charters and vouchers is that that's millennials saying that we don't want our children to go through the same experience that we did and that we knew that it, it we can't keep doing the same thing the same way and expect a different result. So I think what they're really asking for is innovation. Sadly, that we attach charters to innovation as if all charters are innovative and they're not. Some just continue to repeat the same status quo. Many repeat the same status quo. Um, and so I think that what I hear, what I read in that is that millennials want innovation in education, and oftentimes that just that is talked about through charters and vouchers. Um, but I think it's really just rooting this notion that they don't want to have their children go through the same experiences they did as students. Yeah. Paul, well, 
first, I, I need to go on the record in saying all those those memes and stereotypes <laughs> about how millennials are ruining everything. I mean, that's just. I mean, it's just not even. It's just too stupid to be funny to me. I mean, I, some of my best friends are millennials, um, but uh, an unfair view of millennials. It is very yeah, unfair, yeah. and I come from the generation right before millennials. And we were given the stereotypes that we were slackers, we were aimless, we were the first generation that was supposed to do worse than their parents. MTV. MTV. So every generation gets hated on by the ones that come before them. And so um, if there's a thing about charter schools, if there's a push for charter schools that came from the generation before that set things up to where charter schools looked okay. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think that this is all – I think people are – when you get right down to it, the people, the young people I see today aren't any different, really, than the young people that I was part of. Except for, I mean, there are some, there are some uh, obvious differences. But as far as the core, what makes them tick, I mean, they just want the same stuff that teenagers have always wanted throughout life. How are today's young people different from, let's say, their parents on how they view education, public education? I would say that um, young people, millennials particularly, are are a lot more vocal around what their needs are and what they want out of an educational experience, whereas I feel like my mother was just like, go to school, get what you're supposed to get, whereas we're like, no, this is actually what I want, and I this class is not fit. I mean, the conversation I have with students <laughs> every day is, can I change my schedule because I don't want to be in this class because they do it like this, and I want it done like this, and I want this, and so... I feel like the conversations now are much more we advocate for what we want um, and that we we speak up, whereas before it was just kind of this rote, this is what the process is. You go, you get your grades, you go to the next grade level, you move on. Did whereas, you feel that way when, I mean, if it's not clear by now, you're the millennial at the table uh, from <laughs> yes. our teachers. Did you feel that way when you were a student? When I was a student, no. I, I had a very interesting um, matriculation through the K-12 system in that, I mean, I went off, I, I I never felt that way. I felt like I could speak up for what I want and I would get it. Uh, for the most part, the schools are really meeting my needs. That was not always the case for people I knew. Is that a good thing, ultimately? I mean, is that what are the ultimate impacts of that, of being able to, to have choice and, and feel like you can get what you want? If you, I, mean, I, think, I, think that that's, I think that that's very tricky because there's so many moving parts to it. I mean, um, back, when, back when we were in school and certainly back when, when people in my mother's and father's generation were in school, if there was, say, a bad teacher, right, or a bad incident or some kind of scandal, it either got swept under the rug or it was just sort of like it was so – out, it was so out of the stratosphere that it didn't taint everything else anymore with the media and everything you, you hear about bad things that are happening with an education, an educator or something with a school and then it's just like parents are like, oh my God, everything's just horrible and so then the schools come under so much scrutiny, teachers come under so much scrutiny because of the spread of that information and it's just, it's just ubiquitous. As three public school teachers, do you worry that it seems a majority of the younger generation does, by pretty comfortable margins, favor charter schools and vouchers? I would say one of the um, concerns I have around millennials just kind of shifting toward this view of charters and and vouchers that is often a very uninformed view. And so to my previous point around, like, charters are just new, shiniest thing. It's not necessarily an innovative uh, direction in education. And so oftentimes they can just continue to perpetuate the same ills of a traditional public school. They just look nicer and and they sound better. 
Um, but I think if we had a more nuanced conversation around, I think that we would see that the same types of innovation that millennials are looking for actually are taking place in traditional public schools as well. One of the things I do want to add about charter schools that I think get in a lot of people's craw, certainly certainly mine, would be charter schools seem to, to just get the best of everything. Like they just don't have to – they're not bound to state tests. They're not bound to those things. Well, where, if they're, if they're public charter schools, they are. Yeah, right. Yeah, that, yeah, that's true. Uh, I guess I was speaking more about the private charter schools. Um, but public schools, I think, would like to be more innovative. We talk about being more innovative, but it's just like where and how can we do that and how can we, how can we fashion doing that when we are tied to um, – state mandates and right so while they we both traditional public and charters at least in the state of missouri are held to the same um state assessment the way that they get there is very different and so there's a lot they have a looser parameter that they can operate within than the traditional yeah. public they can schools. like do a longer school day longer can, school day they can have less amount a less uh, a few number of certified teachers for certain content right. areas which means they can bring in different professionals to, to teach different things um, so they just have a lot more flexibility than the traditional public school not, setting does. They're typically not unionized, so they can ask their teachers to work 15 hours a day. <laughs> or make their teachers work. Right. I guess what are your reflections about the the questions about race on this? Um, I think I mentioned it at the beginning. Um, there's, there's kind of a contradictory breakdown around um, what millennials see as the effects of or impacts of race on education or educational outcomes. Um, does that hold any interest to you about what that says about the millennial generation? I don't know if it says much about the millennial generation, but I've been thinking and mulling over this conversation around like race and equity, um, particularly integration in education. We have a lot of these articles coming out now talking about how schools have resegregated since the Brown uh, v. Board decision. And then there's like this podcast that's been floating around um, about a different lens or a different take on the Brown v. Board. And it basically says that um, the ruling was not about trying to equalize opportunities for blacks. It was basically saying that because you didn't have white opportunities, then your opportunities weren't of value. When in actuality, mm. that under segregated schools, blacks were performing at higher rates um, because they were sitting in front of teachers who looked like them, who cared about them in different ways. And the impact of integration had a negative impact on African-American performance long term. Hmm. And so when we talk about integration, and we, I think that's one of America's ideals, that we want to be able to say that we're really this uh, racial melting pot and we all can come together, but we see time and time again that that is not the case. When we look at our neighborhoods, look at our neighborhood schools, we look at our churches. Those are often very not uh, often not uh, integrated spaces. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying I'm a proponent of segregation by any stretch of the imagination. I think that there is value and it is humanistic to for people to group together with people who look like them, who have shared experiences as them. And I think that that is what I feel like to some extent what the um, polls are saying when they talk about this neighborhood school. Like we know that our neighborhoods are segregated because of multiple issues. Well, yeah. So I mean, to, to that point, 73% of, res- of white respondents to this survey said that students should enroll in their neighborhood schools, even if the result is less student diversity within that school. Whereas 54% of black respondents said that students should attend racially diverse schools, that's even, probably, if, even if none exists nearby. That's probably because there's more resources. There you go. That's exactly I mean, what I was going to say. I, mm-hmm. I, yeah, to, to Bakari's point, I think people do learn better when they, when they, 
when they're more comfortable, right? Mm -hmm. And they're with people who look like them. But if they don't have the resources that they actually need to get to that next level, then then they want to get out to a school yeah. that does. That does. And too often and in America, right? You got to be sitting next to a white kid in order to have the best teachers, to have the best resources, to have the adequate funding. And, it's, and so when we talk about integration, that's my push on integration is that we're not necessarily need to be pushing for integrated schools. We need to be pushing for effectively funded and effectively uh, staffed schools. And that doesn't necessarily mean that white kids have to be sitting next to us. And that too often is a conversation in order to get equity in education, we have to bring whites in or, or bring in a limited number of minorities. And that's not the or case. Or put blacks next to whites. Exactly. Um, well, good news on that front. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Fine. Uh, on the on the same survey, uh, majorities of millennials across all demographic groups were asked, "What's the best way to improve K twelve education?" Their number one response: increase school funding. Yay. Um, which I, I think we all agree. I don't know. Well, we, yeah. we, we, we all agree. Um, I don't. I don't know if that's surprising or not. Right? Like if if millennials see the policy, you know, see education, and say there needs to be more. Like there needs to be more money in schools. I'm I'm chuckling because I know we didn't have a DeVos moment, or because you know I'm not a fan of that anyway. But recently in DeVos news, she was at Harvard speaking, and she tried. She in her speech, she said something about she doing like a rhetorical something around. So she would just raise the funds or put more money into it, and like somebody in the audience was like yes, because they did like silent protests during her yeah. speech and such, and it was just. So when you talk about it's not surprising that we want more money in schools. You're saying you don't want a Betsy breakdown? Right, no. <laughs> I'm sure a Betsy breakdown will come in the Anytime future. we have a Betsy breakdown and Bakari's on, it's just, he has his pre-scripted answers already. <laughs> She's breaking down our education. <laughs> Moving on to the next topic, in the week after this episode is taped in many countries around the world, on October 5th, we'll celebrate World Teachers' Day, a day to, as UNESCO puts it, devote to appreciating, assessing, and improving education around the world. UNESCO proclaimed the first World Teachers' Day in 1994. World Teachers' Day in past years has been used to promote specific agenda items or themes. Last year, for instance, the theme was, quote, valuing teachers and improving their status in nations that have maybe not traditionally placed a higher value on teachers. Also, the UNESCO Institute for Statistics estimates that to achieve the UN's goal of universal primary education by 2020, countries will need to recruit a total of 12.6 million more primary teachers. Maybe a lot of this is typical diplomatic boilerplate. There is often in this country and around the world a lot of lip service given to the value of teachers, their importance, the great need for them and their skills, yet as we know and have talked about on this episode and in past episodes, often actual policy decisions here and abroad leave teachers feeling frustrated, ignored, and devalued. So the occurrence of World Teachers Day coming up prompted us to ask our teachers, how would you want to be shown appreciation as a teacher? What's the best way to show you appreciation? You know, in other jobs, people get bonuses. You know, they really no, they actually really do. And you know, they say that. You know, you mentioned lip service, and I think you hit it on the head. It's um, teachers hear from a lot of different factions a lot about how we are appreciated, and then I would like to see a bonus actually sometime. I mean, it's something that that yeah, I just would I would like to see a bonus. Merit pay? Is that yeah. what I'm hearing? 
Mm. Not necessarily <laughs> that, but I would like to see. I would like to see the bump. You know, like just like just the bonus one. Just like just like one rush. Like here, here's appreciation, and it's not just a massage on your plan. Um, here's <laughs> here's some appreciation. It's not just like a free bunt cake. You know, it's here's appreciation, and here's like something that's tangible that you can use as you see fit. The way that we give Christmas bonuses to other employees and in, in other sections of society. So yeah. That bonuses like like a like, like a one time like a like Christmas a, bonus yeah like a one time like winter one holiday time, bonus like something like that <laughs> but it isn't it isn't because I'm better than the teacher next door it's because we're all valued because mm. you know so we're valued because the work that we do is hard and life changing absolutely it's not about trying to make us compete against each other it's just about like here here's what but you I will can say sp- a lot of bonuses in like you know the corporate world are it's merit or performance based right I mean so. But you're saying you don't, you don't, you don't want. But you're saying your your perspective system of bonuses would not would be kind of a general. Everyone gets a little bump, right? Mm. Okay, bonuses, Bakari, Paul. How do you? How would you want to be shown appreciation? Give me a free week off. <laughs> you get spring break. Yeah, but like I mean, you one get I can summer. take on my own. Give me like vacation <laughs> time I can take during the school year. Because we're not supposed to take vacation during the school year. Paul, sometimes administrators assume that we're doing something wrong first or not. We're not teaching well and we have to keep proving that we're teaching well. Um, And so I would like I think in a lot of schools, I think it would be great to just say, all right, we trust you. Do your thing. You mean to actually treat you like a professional? Treat us like a professional. Mm -hmm. um, And uh, if you don't try to catch us doing bad things. Now, like I said, in, in my in my school, they're actually pretty good about Your that. Your current school, yeah. My current yeah, school, yeah. they're actually pretty good about that. Bakari, are you listening? <laughs> I am. I am. Well, what's Point the, taken. What's the administrator's view of, of that? I think that we, at my building, we try to assume the best of all of our teachers, of all of our students. I think that there's just this miscommunication. I don't think we're actually, where it feels like it's a gotcha, it's more like we thought that maybe we gave you a heads up. We told you what we're going to be looking for. We walked in. We didn't see it type of thing. So I don't think it's always... I know from our perspective at my building, it, we never try to do the gotchas with teachers because that doesn't help anyone grow. Um, so we try to assume the best and then ask questions if we are seeking clarification. Well, stay tuned. We're going to do Kids These Days after the credits. This episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by Teach for America Kansas City. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control in what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter, just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. When you go to our Facebook page, you can log on to our shared community feedback Google Doc and give us some ideas for future shows. You can also ask questions for an upcoming Ask the Teacher segment. We just did one of those last episode, looking for more questions for future episodes. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Once you find us, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed the conversation you've heard, subscribe, leave us a review. And keep the conversation going. Now, for kids these days, Paul, what are your kids into? Uh, recently, they're all about the. Everybody's excited about the release of the second season of Stranger Things right. on Netflix. Is Eleven still alive? Where's Barbara? Where's the Upside Down going? So that's what that's what they're all about. Where's Barbara? That's what I want to know too. Uh, Luann, what are your kids into? You just crossed off Stranger Things when Paul was talking. <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> um. 
Okay, so there's just really two really short things. There's a makeup tutorials on YouTube. Apparently, that's a thing with uh, a lot of the girls. Um, and so they come and they'll chat about like how you do this eyebrow or that eyebrow. And so oh, trading so like, around. So face makeup. Yeah, I was thinking like making do, up credit. No, make no. no I'm telling <laughs> you, no, nothing <laughs> academic. No makeup. No face makeup. Right. And then just as a point of something kind of funny, uh, one of one of my students uh, tweets so much that she is now. Uh, Twitter is giving her that 250 character like tryout oh. time, and uh, she's actually or 280 said, character. Is it 80? Yeah, okay, it doubles the it doubles the whatever. Current, yeah. Her thoughts aren't long enough, <laughs> so she's having trouble filling 280 characters. So that's just kind of funny. Oh, <laughs> the problems, yeah. problems. Uh, Bakari, what are your kids into? Giving each other new acronyms for their status in each other's lives. So there's like FS, which is favorite sister. I mean, we all know the norm, bet the um, bestie. There's also FC, favorite cousin. Um, anything, they all have favorite something now, or little sister, little brother, but they only use acronyms. They never say the full words anymore. So when I'm like talking to kids and like, Oh, that's my so and so. That's my FS. That's my my AB. I'm like, what? Who? I'm so I have to literally like write down the acronym so I can keep up, so I don't misreference them. You have a full and it changes from week to week. It seems right. Today they're your FS, and that's tomorrow they're your enemy. Of course enemy. it will. Yeah. Middle schoolers. Yeah. Gotta love them. <laughs> well, thanks to our teachers this week: Paul Donovan, Luann Fox, and Bakari Okuu. Thanks as always to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3 Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. I'm Kyle Palmer, and remember, kids, be nice to your teachers and administrators. <laughs>